0: Thank you so much. It's really great to be with you guys again this morning. I, uh, I really look forward to it. I took a little break from um, Pulpit fill uh, other churches that I've been working with, and it kind of happened naturally. Uh, one, nobody was asking me, so that was easy to make the break happen. <laughs> Uh, but two, uh, even if people did ask me, I felt like mm, it would be nice to have a, a a short sabbatical in that at least. Um, but when Paul asked me, I was, I was excited to be able to share with you guys. I just really like it here, and I like you guys as well. Uh, as I was preparing, I had kind of three different directions I was thinking about for this service. That's the hard thing about having a freebie service, you know. I wasn't in Romans. It would be the end of Romans chapter 1. And I just felt like that's a good one for Paul to preach um, <laughs> later. So, um, so the hard thing is trying to discern, well, what should I teach on then if I'm not being assigned a passage? And uh, there's a lot of challenges that come with that. And so I had three different directions I thought about going and landed somewhere kind of in the middle. And I want to start by just acknowledging and saying I, I live my life, I've lived most of my Christian life in my head I like uh, the analytical, the intellectual, the academic, the cerebral space of theology and apologetics. That's where I feel comfortable. That's my default. That's where I'd go to. And so I thought I was going to bring a teaching kind of in line with that, especially on the heels of the conference about the Trinity and Fred Sanders being here, which I was able to attend the evening sessions, and I just just thought that that was great. I soaked it up. And really enjoyed that. And I thought, okay, it inspired me to maybe bring something similar. Uh, but as I sat at my computer and was working on my slides, I just felt more and more like this is not really the direction I think I, I should be going. So uh, I'm also kind of stubborn. So I thought, well, maybe I can kind of go that direction and then kind of turn and go another direction. And as I kind of worked that out, I felt like the Lord brought me to a a space where what I was thinking about doing and teaching today from kind of more of an academic standpoint, um, really the bottom line is it ultimately it filters down to our heart and to our soul, if we allow it to. And that's what God has been doing the last, I would say, several years, but especially this last year and a half in my life, in the life of my family. Um, I've shared a little bit of my story uh, at different times when I've shared here, and I'll probably share a little bit more today. And so I kind of want to invite you on a journey from the head through the heart to the soul. It'll be a brief journey, of course, and this is kind of a a lifelong lesson for me, I think. It will be playing out, and hopefully, as I invite you to it, it will um, be something that you would consider to be a lifelong draw as well in our relationship with Jesus together. And so uh, what I was going to do and what I'm going to kind of start with and, and use as a as the journey from the head to the heart was I was going to bring a teaching called, your eyes are going to roll in the back of your head when I tell you this. Uh, the teaching is called the miracle of messianic, the miracle of naturally fulfilled messianic prophecy. All right. So you're already like, okay, there's a lot of words in that title. Can we use an acronym or something for that? Uh, It sounds like a museum, you know, like the the Museum of Natural History or something like that. It's like, how boring is this going to be? It's not boring to me. I love it. I I eat it up. I nerd out on this kind of stuff. Um, And I want it to not be boring to other people as well, but I recognize that it kind of is. and so, Or it can be, at least. And so I am going to share a little bit about that and then lead into... Uh, kind of the heart and soul of that. So when I was taking a class in seminary on Old Testament survey, we were assigned uh, to write a research paper on a topic that we got to choose from the Old Testament. And as I was trying to think about, okay, what do I want to teach on? Uh, what I want to write on? Um, I, I just, re- I knew right away, I love prophecy. And so we had to submit our topic to the professor, of course, and get approval. So I said, I want to, I want to write on prophecy. And he replied, that's too vague. Okay, back to the drawing board. And I replied back, okay, I want to write on messianic prophecy. And he replied back, still too vague. Okay, so back to the drawing board. Okay, how can I get my way here and uh, and not, it, it not be too vague? And so um, during that time, I'd had conversations as I was kind of doing evangelism and outreach and stuff with people who also tried to, reason academically or intellectually about theological things and some of the arguments i i heard included the idea that miracles just don't exist we you know we're we're taking it for granted as believers that miracles exist and so we believe in a lot of things that are kind of based in myth or just fairy tales in the bible and in reality miracles don't exist and so Um, we're already off to a bad start when we're trying to talk about Jesus and the resurrection and the truth of the Christian faith. And so uh, I remember thinking, well, if there's a way for me to demonstrate um, from a a naturalistic point of view that miracles are possible and that they actually do exist, how would I go about doing that? And so what I thought was, if I could demonstrate that the Bible— has prophecies, and I'm not going to call them prophecies for the sake of argument, I'm going to call them predictions. That the Bible is able to predict the future, and that the future is able to come true, but the way that it came, the, the way that the predictions came true were through natural means. Okay, so that's what I'm talking about when I say naturally fulfilled prophecies. For example, when Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem, that's a very natural event, but it's also fulfilling a prediction. Or when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, it's a very natural event. I think that earth is very supernatural, but it's something that occurs on a regular basis. And so to us as humans, it's natural. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and that's a natural occurrence, but it fulfills a prediction in the Old Testament. And as I began this journey of writing this paper, I realized, oh my goodness, as I went through the amount of prophecy, we've been told like there's something like 300, 350 messianic prophecies of Jesus first coming. I think there's more than that, especially when you get into the nuances of the predictions that are made. And as I started doing my research, I realized there's a ton more of that. There's a ton more than that, probably just in the natural fulfillments that happened. And what I realized is there are several certain and specific predictions that are made just about Jesus alone, not to mention other events and, and, and his historical uh, realities. Just about Jesus alone. There are so many and they are certain in that they're going to happen a certain way and they're specific in that they give details of what's going to be around those predictions. And so I started to write that and I thought, wow, this is more than I, I didn't even finish the paper. I got a decent grade on it, but I had to ask, I can't even finish this. Like, I think that I, told the professor, this is too vague <laughs> of a topic. And so um, from that paper, I developed a, a teaching that I taught in an adult Sunday school class on PowerPoint. And I started to try to systematize all of these categories. And so what I realized was that uh, in other conversation I had, people would say, okay, uh, Jesus was a real person and maybe he fulfilled predictions. But I think that he read what was written and this tried to fulfill The predictions in order to show himself as the as the Messiah, and so you know he read what the Messiah would be like, and then he just did it, and that was the fulfillment. In other words, he purpose he purposefully fulfilled prophecy. Uh, On the other hand, I've heard talk people talk about well, when I've read the Bible, it doesn't look like Jesus is trying to fulfill anything. He's trying to keep people from talking about him as the Messiah. He's silencing people. He's not claiming to be the Messiah. And so people saw this person and thought, wow, he seems to be fitting these predictions and tried to fit him into this mold of Messiah, but he wasn't really trying to be the Messiah. So I have both arguments that Jesus really was thought to fulfill prophecy or predictions passively. In other words, it was happening to him and people just projected that on him. And I've heard the other argument that no, he was trying to fulfill predictions purposefully. So which was it passively or purposefully? Well, it's both. Jesus fulfilled predictions passively through things like being born in Bethlehem, moving to Egypt, things about his birth, his childhood, his ancestry, his arrival. Um, Now, you and I know that he did that on purpose, right? He did that on purpose. But from a human standpoint, nobody can decide where they're born, right? Predict where they're born. I used to be into the Chuck Norris jokes. You guys remember that several years ago? We were doing that in youth group. Chuck Norris jokes are great. If you missed it, go online and check it out. They're still there. It's timeless. All right? There's a few great jokes about Chuck Norris. Okay. One of my favorites is, Chuck Norris sleeps with a pillow under his gun. Or uh, Chuck Norris can unscramble an egg. Or when Bruce Banner gets mad, he turns into the Hulk. When the Hulk gets mad, he turns into Chuck Norris, right? Superman wears Chuck Norris pajamas, right? All these things, like all these jokes. But here's here's my favorite one. Here's my favorite one. Chuck Norris was born in a log cabin that he built with his own hands. Well, we know that it's impossible for somebody to be born in a space that they built themselves, but it happened once with Jesus. (laughs) He's the creator of all things, and he was born in the space that he created. And so uh, Jesus both passively fulfilled prophecy in that it happened to him, and he purposefully fulfilled prophecy in that he happened to it. That's something that's amazing about Jesus. In fact, prophecy and the resurrection were two of the intellectual things when I was in my early 20s that convinced me that that the Bible is true, that God exists, that Jesus is the Savior, that he died for my sins, and that that's the end of the story as far as where I need to search for purpose, meaning, and salvation. Um, Something I discovered as I was making this outline was this thing was just so extensive, and I started had to categorize and subcategorize different prophecies and predictions. And so just under Jesus fulfilled prophecy passively, I had in his advent, and advent just means arrival, but it means a little bit more than that. It means arrival of a notable person or event, you know, it's like, I'm not going to say like, you know, this morning at nine 30, my advent at Soma dawned, you know, it's like I'm not as notable or, or as a person, or that's not a notable event, right? I arrived, but Jesus had an advent because he was a notable, notable person. So under advent, I have arrival because he did arrive. I have, um, in his uh, in his arrival, in his ancestry, in his announcement by John the Baptist, and in his title. Now, as I was writing this out, I realized that's not a good way for a teacher, Bible teacher to go about their alliterations. I have arrival, ancestry, announcement, title. I need an A there. So I went to the thesaurus to look for a word that meant title that started with an A. And I found this word appellation. And I thought, this is going to be ridiculous. I'm trying to fit this word. Nobody knows what this word means. At least I didn't. Nobody knows you know, appellation. I'm just fitting it in here. Like, I'm just forcing this. I think I'll stick with title. But I started to research the word appellation. And this is what I found out. And this is part of the head to the heart journey I want to bring you on. I researched the word appellation. And I came across this French phrase called appellation controlée. And I started to do research on it. And the Appellation contrôle is a uh, a certification, uh, governing certification metric in France for viticulture, for vineyards, for wine, and not just viticulture. It also applies to cheeses and meats and things like that. Uh, in the U.S., we have something equivalent called the American Viticulture er, Viticultural Area. It doesn't sound as cool as Appellation contrôle right? <laughs> So as I began to research what this certification process was, I realized there is a deep connection, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it right now, between what the Appalachian Controle is and who Jesus is. Because the, pr- the process of certification, it's the label, it's like a stamp. It's basically, what it is, is it's saying, we know exactly where this wine originated from. And we're not just, telling, we're not just saying it originated from this country, we know where in the country it originated, and we know which vineyard it originated from. And in some cases, we know which vine it originated from. And I began to realize as I was researching this word that the word appellation definitely fits here because the same process that's used to identify from a grand scale down to a narrow scale who Jesus or how, where the wine came from, comes from— is the same process that God reveals to us in Scripture from Genesis all the way through the book until Jesus is revealed in the Gospels and explained in the letters? Is the same process by which God demonstrates who Jesus is. And these several certain and specific predictions all narrow down to this one person. The ancestry for existence. The Messiah is going to be a child of Abraham. There's lots of children of Abraham. All right, let's narrow it down. It's going to be a child of Isaac. All right, there's lots of children of Isaac. Okay, he's going to be a, chi- a child of, of uh, Jacob, Judah. Uh, jo- he's going to be a legal descendant of Jehoiachin, but not a, not a biological offspring. He's going to be a legal descendant of Zerubbabel. I forgot David, right? David's before that. He's going to be a, uh, a biological and legal descendant of David as a king. So you're narrowing it down, right? You're getting the appellation down to who this specific person is. And that's what the Appalachian Controle does. But at the end of that, as you come to the end of that, you realize God is using this certification process similar to the Appellation Controle to identify who Jesus is and where he came from. But it gets even better than that. Because not, because not only is God using that process to identify who he is, but since Jesus is God in flesh, not only is he identified by the appellation controlé, he himself is, he is the appellation controlé. He is the system of identification. He uses the system and he himself is the controlling system of who he is, what he's come to do. That's amazing to me. So from a head standpoint, getting all this information, it just makes me want to worship him. It, it fills my, my heart and my mind with inspiration to worship God. But herein lies the problem. That's how I lived most of my Christian life, was being inspired by deep theological truths, which we should be, and we need that. But what I was also realizing at the same time is it would penetrate certain levels of my heart and, and my desire to to want to live for God and honor Him. But it wasn't providing, it wasn't causing deep transformation in my life. It wasn't touching deep insecurity issues. It wasn't deep, touching deep relational brokenness. It wasn't touching deep childhood trauma. And so now... I want to take you into a journey in the heart. One of the things about the Appellation Controle is that uh, the Old Testament identifies which titles Jesus would own. He will own the title of Messiah. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 2. He'll own the title of King. Psalm 2 and verse 6. He'll own the title of Lord. Psalm 110. He'll own the title of King. He'll own the title of Of God. All of this is predicted multiple places in the Old Testament. He'll own the title of servant. And that brings us to our passage this morning, which is Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. A short sentence of context: Jesus just healed the hand of a wither, uh, uh, the withered hand of a man on a Sabbath day, and so naturally the Pharisees want to kill him because that's just how it worked. Verse fifteen: Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Isaiah, Uh, Matthew quotes the Old Testament about seventy something times, and this is the longest quotation that Matthew uses from the Old Testament. Verse eighteen: Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will, will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out; no one will hear his voice in the streets. This is, the, this is the verse I want to focus on this morning. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Till he leads justice to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Uh, For the last several weeks, this verse, I didn't even know what the context, I didn't remember what the context was or what the address was of this verse, verse 20, has been resonating in my heart. I, I didn't even go to the Bible to check it out. It's just been resonating in my heart. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I think I can identify my life as a bruised reed and a smoldering wick. When I look back on my life and when I think about the way that I feel right now, that resonates as reality to me. That's how I feel. Uh, Some of you have heard a bit of the story, but um, last year was the hardest year, uh, that me and my family, my wife have ever experienced. And just a couple of events on the timeline. So starting in December of the previous year, 2021, we were pregnant with our third child or fourth child. And, um, we were about to, uh, we had a, we're going to have a home birth. So we had a, uh, ultrasound tech, um, Scheduled to come to our house uh, halfway through the pregnancy, so we could find out the gender. We were really excited about it. Of course, we have three boys. I have four total. That's a whole another story. That's the Jerry Springer story. Uh, but we have three. At, we have three at home, and. Um, so, you know, everybody was like, all you guys can do is boys, that's what you're going to have, and everybody's like, you're due for a girl. So it was a mixed bag of everybody who knew that we were pregnant and buying for, you know, what the gender was going to be. And so uh, we were excited to find out. Well, the day before our ultrasound, um, our midwife, who was supposed to come weeks before, but she had another uh, mother go into labor, so she had to postpone. Our midwife came to do a prenatal checkup with Katie, and during the ultrasound, she couldn't find a heartbeat. So she gently let us know. She didn't. She didn't make any conclusion about it. Um, I think she was very uh, discerning in that. And she said she knew we were having an ultrasound the next morning. So she said, "Let's see, wait and see what the ultrasound shows." So we were kind of tipped off something's not right. And so we had the ultrasound, and of course, the ultrasho- ultrasound showed that the that the baby had passed away. Uh, katie 's body so it wasn 't a miscarriage because katie 's body thought it was still pregnant, so it was going on as if as if the pregnancy was still viable and the child was still alive. The baby was still alive and so in that ultrasound, we found out both that the baby had passed away and that she was a girl and so uh, we had been invested in some dear friends um, concerning emotional health how to how to live life emotionally healthy. So this was a real time test for us. So we engaged the grief head on. Something that we would we would we had never done before. We would suppress grief, we'd use spiritual bypass, we'd try to get around, we'd try to Romans 8, 28, the whole thing, right? And so uh, but we engaged the grief head on individually as a as a as a uh, married couple and as a family, our boys as well. And it made all the difference in the world for us. And we felt like God was merciful to us in that process. Uh, well, uh, about a month and a half later, my wife had, had uh, onset postpartum depression. It was severe to the point where I thought I might have to institutionalize her because she was not herself. She was not in her right mind. And as that was happening, I was suddenly and unexpectedly let go from my ministry position uh, out of the blue of uh, 15 years. And um, what ensued from that was, deep, deep feelings of confusion and betrayal and all kinds of difficult uh, emotions. Uh, every category of our life was turned upside down overnight, except for our family, and it was holding on by a thread. A few, uh, what happened during that time is there was no income. I thought I was going to be able to get unemployment, so I applied for that, and I uh, found out two months later that I was not eligible for unemployment because the ministry, some ministries are not required to pay into unemployment. So just disillusionment after disillusionment. Katie shares with me during this time that she's pregnant again. And I just think I'm unemployed. We have no income. We're going to be, we're going to have to move out of our house. Like we have, we have nothing. I can't work. I feel like I need to go to the hospital. I have phys- physically I look fine, but I feel like I need to lie in a, in the and fetal position in a dark corner somewhere. So I'm thinking, how are we going to do this, another child? And then I get over the shock, and I try to embrace, like, okay, well, God's in control. He knows, you know, and he's, children are a blessing from the Lord. Well, meanwhile, we had, um, we had scheduled uh, a getaway just with Katie and I on the due date, of the original due date of when our daughter was supposed to be born. We named her Corey Day. Um, which means mercy of God. And so the weekend of April 25th, 2022, last year, we scheduled a getaway. And so we dropped our kids off uh, with some friends and they were going to take shifts with our friends. And Katie wasn't feeling well that morning. And so as we, uh, uh, well, I should back up a little bit. Something that Katie told me was that she said, hey, you're not going to believe this, but the new baby, the second baby's due date is... December 8th. And that was the day that we scheduled the induction and that Corey uh, day was was stillborn, December 8th. And I was thinking like out of all the days, you know, how could that be the due date? This is crazy. And I, I, I just thought, okay, God, are you trying to redeem something here? Are you trying to show me something? And so I just kind of, you know, it was like Mary when she just tucked it in the back of her Mind in the back of her heart, pondered it to herself. That's how, kind of what I was doing with this pregnancy. So then fast forward to this weekend, April 24th, 5th, and we're leaving to go out to go to a KOA. Somebody graciously parked their camper out for us. And on the way there, Katie realizes she's miscarrying. Oh. And so uh, we're driving. We've got our bikes. We have we have a, a plan to... Um, to have an adventure, spend time alone together and to just, ha- you know, be able to move into this space of having fun and also reflecting on the loss. And so, um, as, uh, as we're driving out there, I'm fuming. I'm thinking our plans are ruined. Katie doesn't feel, feel well. Our vacation, our, our time is ruined. This is What what you know like our friends were waiting for us at the campsite to show us the camper and stuff, and I I pulled up and I said I cannot get out of the car I can't talk to anybody right now I'm so angry so Katie got out and I went and drove and tried to cool down and it wasn't until afterwards that I realized and I just felt like this was so cruel I was so angry at God that Corey Day was supposed to be born on the weekend of April twenty fourth twenty fifth and. The new baby, its due date was on the day that Corey was stillborn. And the new baby miscarries on the day that Corey was originally supposed to be born. How can that happen? How does that happen? God, you're in control and you are making this happen. That was the only response I could have. Like, you're in control and you're allowing this to happen. After that time, I fell into such a a, a deep and dark depression over the summer of, of of last year. I just felt like I didn't want to be alive anymore. I felt like um, the betrayal that was residual that we were experiencing, just different things, and the, the narrative was so so challenging. And I didn't I didn't I couldn't read the Bible. I couldn't I felt like I couldn't go to church. I couldn't worship. I couldn't do the things that I, I, like, I had this cognitive dissonance of, I think, I know Jesus is the only one who can heal me. But I don't want anything to do with him right now. He's so merciful. He's so gentle. He's so tender. And a bruised reed, he does does not break. And a smoldering wick, he does not snuff out. And I was a bruised reed, and I was a smoldering wick. And I'm still not, I'm still not healed all the way from that. I still have so many questions and so much brokenness and so much curiosity about life and about loss and grief and hardship. But Jesus bandages the bruised reed and he provides oil for the smoldering wick and he does it so gently and so tenderly. And It was interesting because around the same time this verse was resonating in my heart and my mind, another passage came to mind, and I thought they didn't have anything to do with each other, but then I realized, as I read it, I realized, oh my goodness, like i see I see the correlation here, and so just real quick, if you want to turn to Luke chapter ten. And this is something I think probably most of you know well, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, I'm not going to give a lot of the backstory because it's not pertinent to what I want to point out, but basically Jesus tells this parable because the expert of the law says, well, who is my neighbor? And he tells this parable about a man who was uh, ambushed by robbers and thieves and they left him for dead. And uh, first a, a priest walked by and saw him and crossed on the other side of the road. And then a Levite Walked by both religious Jewish religious leaders, and he's talking to Jews when he's telling the story. And the the Levite walked by, and then a Samaritan came, and it says here in Luke chapter ten and verse thirty three. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. Pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. Took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins. And gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. But back at verse 34, when I read this. It says... he went to him and he bandaged his wounds pouring oil pouring on oil and wine and i realized the same thing i was feeling about verse 20 about the, the bruised reed that he bandages and the smoldering wick that he provides oil for this is exactly what the samaritan almost verbatim is what the good samaritan is doing in this parable that he bandaged his wounds and he poured oil and wine and i just thought wow God is showing me something about himself here. The other thing that's interesting is that there's this hot topic or this hot word in our culture right now, trauma, the word trauma. We think, um, we hear the word trauma and it triggers a lot of us who are believers because in some ways it's connected to kind of woke culture and you know, everybody's uh, finding out that everybody's been traumatized, but I just want to bring up, bring a challenge to that right now. Um, it may be the case that what people are saying about trauma that they've experienced, may, maybe it is or it isn't trauma. Maybe it's just they're they're just latching on to this term that's being used. But I, would, I do want to say that trauma is real. And it is affecting a lot of people. In fact, there's a lot of Christian leaders who are saying they believe that trauma is the biggest mission field in our area right now. I think it's helpful to define what trauma is. Well, first I want to say, the only mention, the trauma is a Greek word, and it's mentioned in the Bible right here in verse 30, 34. It, uh, he went to him and bandaged his trauma. That's the Greek word. Used for wounds, right there. The definition of trauma is psychological, or uh, there's obviously physical trauma. So, in psychiatry work, the definition of trauma is psychological or emotional injury caused by a deeply disturbing experience. This is how I define trauma. Not that I'm an expert, but it's just, I feel like. This is what the Lord put on my heart regarding my wrestling with what is trauma and how do we engage and deal with it. This is how I define it: a wound, a wound whether physical or emotional, a wound that requires external intervention in order to heal. Trauma, a wound that requires external intervention in order to heal. In other words, I can't produce the healing myself. Something outside of me has to help me to heal. When you have a severe physical wound that is prone to getting infected, you need some outside thing. Your body's not gonna, your body's demonstrating it doesn't have the capacity to handle that wound properly. That can happen both physically and emotionally. And I feel like that's what Jesus is doing. And he's I don't even want to say what I think he's using this last year and all those experiences for. I have no idea. I really don't. I don't know why brokenness like that happens in our lives. I know it's the result of sin and the fall and all of this. I know the theological reasons, but when it comes down to it, the loss and the suffering and the hurt and the pain that we experience, why? Okay. Miscarriages happen. Still, uh, Stillbirth, hap- those happen, but it doesn't happen that the, that the miscarriage happens on the due date of the original baby and the baby dies on the due date of the next baby. Those things don't happen. Why, God? Why does that have to be the case? There's a lot that can be said about the Good Samaritan. Here's one thing. The Good Samaritan likely did not have good theology. And I think Jesus is making a point here. He's using a Samaritan on purpose. The Jews did not like Samaritans. They were outcasts. But here's the thing the Samaritan did have. He had the experience of knowing what it was like to be an outcast. He knew what it was like to experience social rejection, just like this man that he found left for dead. And that brought about pity and compassion in him to do something about it. And until we bring our wounds, because all of us have them, we hit a wall with our wounds and we decide to do one of three things. We have four options. but We usually do one of three things. We go backward in bitterness. We go to the left in apathy. Or we go to the right with spiritual bypass and pretend like nothing's ever happened. And we Romans 828, the whole thing. The only way to make it Through is forward, is through the wall. The only way to make it through is through, and that is engaging the hurt and the grief and the loss in ways that expand the capacity of your soul to experience God. And I think that's what he's doing in me. And I'll close with this. What does this definition remind you of? A wound that requires external intervention in order to heal trauma. It reminds me of the gospel. This is the gospel. The ultimate trauma is the fall. That's our trauma. And guess what? It requires external intervention in order to be healed. And so what had to happen? Jesus himself had to become bruised. He had to become smoldering and snuffed out. And who did that? God crushed him. It pleased God to crush him. It says, it's a mystery in Isaiah 53 and verse 10. And Jesus was snuffed out. He was cut off by God. He was bruised for us. He had to become the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one, bring many sons to glory. Who killed Jesus? Did the Romans kill him? Yes. Did the Jews kill him? Yes. Did the world kill him? Yes. Did Satan kill him? Yes. Genesis 3.15. Did sin kill him? Yes. Yes. Did I kill him? Yes. Did you kill him? Yes, did God kill him? Yes, he is the appellation contrôle. He's the only one who was killed by all of these realities. We could never heal from the trauma of the fall without his external intervention. This is the phrase I'll close with. I thought of this years ago when I thought about the blood of Jesus and how important it is to be applied to our lives and what it does. And as we move to the Lord's table, I just want to share this quote with you. The blood of Jesus is the only commodity that could free humanity from the depths of depravity. The blood of Jesus is the only commodity that could free humanity from the depths of depravity. We needed external intervention. And Jesus, who does not bruise does not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering flax became himself the bruised reed the smoldering flax and he was broken and he was snuffed out and cut off so that we could be healed amen lord god as we go to the as we go to the table of the lord now we just pray lord that you would help us to reflect not only on the trauma of the fall and the goodness that you showed in sending your son and the Holy Spirit to rescue and redeem us, but also us personally. You care about our stories, God. You care about our stories. They're important to you. And you see us. You're the God who sees. And what you see is a room full of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, And you walk among us, and you are so gentle to bandage and to provide oil so that there may be life in your name. We thank you for this great gift and for your mercy to us. Please help us to bring our wounds to you and find healing in Jesus' name. Amen.